Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, be acceptable in your sight. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, speak this morning. Touch us, move us, draw us ever closer to you through Christ Jesus. This I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we are in the midst of a series called The Ministry of Jesus. And in conjunction with this, we've been learning what ministry is. At its basic root, ministry is being of service to others. So when we say the ministry of Jesus, it is his preaching, his teaching, his healing, his going about the service unto us for the glory of God. And last week I talked about how I got an email that I really liked that kind of summarized ministry because we often think about ministry just being professions, but it's not that. That's not what we're talking about here. So it is, the, the, the email said, I believe my ministry is wherever, whenever, and whoever he puts in my path each day and is truly ordered by him and that he would equip me and use me to glorify him. That's it in a nutshell, right? The wherever, whenever, and with whoever, all to the glory of God. Now that last part, the glory of God, is important. Because it's not just the service you do unto others. It's the reason why you do everything you do. Just like what we talk about. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good, right? And that's why we do what we do. We do everything under the glory of God. That's the ministry we're talking about. No matter what you do, no matter where you are, with who you are. Now, uh, you're familiar with Johann Sebastian Bach. He wrote some of the most beautiful, wonderful music in the world, right? I don't know if you're familiar with it, but on the bottom of all of his manuscripts, he wrote SDG. It's Latin. And it's abbreviation for glory to God alone. That's what he wrote at the bottom of all his manuscripts because he knew whatever music he did was for others but to the glory of God. And when you are engaged in that ministry to the glory of God, it takes on a whole new depth and breadth of what you're doing. Wherever you are, Whenever it is, whoever you're with, it is for his glory. And when you understand about his glory, you can't help but understand more about Jesus and the love, the steadfast love of God for us in Christ Jesus. And then when you're doing ministry, you understand that you're doing ministry for the King of Kings for the Lord of lords, for his glory, and for his kingdom. So this morning, we are going to focus on Jesus, and it is the kingdom of heaven. And if you want the framework for today, the framework is this. Into darkness, he brings light. He proclaims the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's our framework for today. Into darkness... He brings light. 
He proclaims the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we're going to first start with into darkness. And we're going to start with our reading from Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So here's the context. The context is that Jesus had been baptized, that he had gone off into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and that he had come back. Now, we don't know how long from when he returned to when it picks up in Matthew, because Matthew is not concerned about doing chronological order here, about getting the exact time right. We do know, for instance, though, that he would have gone to Nazareth. And it was in Nazareth that he went into the synagogue. And in the synagogue, he read from the prophet Isaiah. And he said this. He said that God had anointed him to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind to set liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he said, all of that has now been fulfilled in your hearing. And so they were stunned by this. I mean, they were really stunned by this. And they had more conversation, but then they got really mad. And it says that they were filled with wrath. Wrath. And do you remember? Do you know what they tried to do to him? Throw him off a cliff. Now, this is pretty different for people in our modern day of age who think of Jesus. They think, well, Jesus was just a nice, friendly guy, wasn't he? No one would ever get mad about Jesus. And if Jesus did get mad at people, they deserved it. And do you know, it's always other people, not us, (laughs) who deserve it. But you see, you have to understand that Jesus isn't just a friend. Jesus is the king who has come to his kingdom. Think of all the things that the gospel writers have written, especially in Matthew. Matthew really post, uh, uh, puts forth Jesus as king. In the beginning of Matthew, there's the genealogy which traces back to which king? King David, right? And then the magi, the three wise men come, and they ask Herod, where is the king of the Jews. And then Jesus is baptized. He's anointed and filled with the Holy Spirit, just like King David was anointed and filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he goes out in the the wilderness. He's tempted. He's tested by the devil. And his character is shown to be true, to be perfect. So this is Christ the King who has come to his people. And what do they want to do? Throw him off the cliff. So Jesus leaves Nazareth. Pretty dark place, right? And he goes to Capernaum. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of information about Capernaum. So got a map on the screen there. Capernaum. It was his headquarters for most of his ministry and was on the northwest side of Galilee. And uh, the Capernaum means the village of Nahum, 
and the west shore of the lake was settled by the tribe of Naphtali. Naphtali. Okay, so it makes a little bit more sense when it describes Capernaum as the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Okay, so that's just a little bit of background where it was. But why was Capernaum so important? Well, the ancient writer Josephus just gave glowing reviews, so to speak, about Capernaum. It was a very, very fertile area in the region of Galilee. And because it was so fertile, it had a very large population. Now, most of us think that Jesus was just kind of in the backwaters, right? Away from all the other people. But Josephus says that there were about 204 villages around the Sea of Galilee. Now, Sea of Galilee is about 50 miles tall, 25 miles wide. You do 204 villages around there, that's a lot of villages. And he also says none of the villages had less than 15,000 people. So if you do the math, it's over 3 million people. Let's say he was exaggerating by half. That's still one and a half million people around the Sea of Galilee. That's a lot of people. But Capernaum was also set in an area that it bordered another political border. So it was, you would have a lot of non-Jews coming in. So the Galilee of the Gentiles. So you get a lot of non-Jews there. It was uh, an important trade route, a route that would, people would go on. And so if there's commerce, you also have tax collectors, right? So this where Matthew would come in. So you had a lot of people situated right there. So it was not only to fulfill a prophecy, it was planned that he would be there. Because that was a place that needed light. The whole area was a land of darkness. He brought light. So let's go into this next section here. So that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Nephali. I can't say that this morning. It's just one of those days, isn't it? The way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles... The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. A couple things about this. One, that it shows the prophet Isaiah, his prophecy was fulfilled. It shows that there was a continuation of God's promise. That Jesus was fulfilling God's promises And you could actually trace God's promises all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We covered this actually in the Bible study on Wednesday. The promise of redemption actually declared in chapter 3. And every single prophecy since then being fulfilled, this is a continuation of God's ministry, Jesus being the fulfillment of that promise. Now the promise that was fulfilled is from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. We often read this, right, during Advent, during Christmas. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. So I actually did cover this section 
during our Christmas Eve message, but since not everybody was here, and I'm going to guess not everybody remembers it word for word, let's try it again a little bit, right? Refresh our memories. So, light has been associated with God from the beginning throughout Scripture. Light is associated with God's purity, His glory, His knowledge, His unchangeability, salvation. For example, Isaiah chapter 60, verse, starting in verse 1, Arise, shine, for the light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the people's but The Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. By the way, there's a group called Selah, wonderful Christian group. They have a song, Hope for the Broken World. They use this verse, Arise, Shine. Beautiful song. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 19. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my what? Salvation. Whom shall I fear? In the Gospel of John In him was life, and the life was the light of man. Who is the light? Who is our life? What's his name? His name is Jesus, right? Jesus is the light. He's not a light. He is the light. He's not a reflection of the light. He's not simply just a reflection of the Father. He is the source of of all light and life. And the life he brings to us is not just physical life, although we do have our physical life because of him. It is the light and life of salvation. He brings light to the blind. We sang that song, I was blind, but now I see. I have seen what? I have seen the light. And who is the light? That is Jesus. We have seen that. He's the light who brings people out of bondage, of sin, of darkness, and brings them out into his light, his life. He is the source of light for the deepest, darkest, sane, sin-stained part of the world. And this is one of the problems. People who are in darkness who are in deep sin do not like the light. They will try to shy away from any light that is shown upon them. Adam and Eve back in the garden, they knew they had sinned, and what did they do? They hid, didn't they? And God came and searched them out. Where are you? But people in their sin don't like the light. And the more you tell people about Jesus who are in darkness, you can expect them to yell back at you, to rail against the light. Because then they would have to say that they are sinners. And yet it is the people who are broken, who are in darkness, who are in sin, that need the light the most. So 
What has God done? God sends his son to be the light in the darkness. God didn't simply wait for those in dark and sin to come to him. He came to them, just like in the garden. He searched out Adam and Eve, where are you? God continually sends and searches us out. Jesus was sent to those in darkness, and it is God who moves first for our redemption. It says from our reading, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. You see, whatever, wherever, with whoever, you are doing ministry all to the glory of God. Do you know what you bring with you? You bring light into darkness. That's what you do when you are of service to others. You bring his love, his grace, his mercy, his light to those in need. And I know you've experienced that before. And sometimes you've been on the receiving end of that as well, where you need to hear the good news proclaimed. And Jesus does proclaim good news. He announces the kingdom of heaven. From that time, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, that phrase, from that time, is a point of demarcation. He had been baptized. He had been anointed. He's consecrated. He has gone and been tempted and shown to be true. He is the king. And now he begins his ministry. It is a point, a line of demarcation from that time forward all the way up to the cross. Now, you and I have points of demarcation too, right? Growing up, you, and as a kid, I'm standing, right? How many of you have little scars there, Phil, from when you fell? But you stand, right? There's a point of demarcation. Riding your bike the first time, right? Maybe wobbly, but it was a point of demarcation. Going to school, right? We have all of these, but in your walk of faith, you also have marks, uh, points of demarcation. Points where you grow in your faith. Points where you say, you know what? I no, wa- I no longer want to be a Sunday-only type Christian. I want to have a living faith. That's a point of demarcation. A point of demarcation says, I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what. Even if it's costly, I'm going to follow him. Even if I trip and I fall, even if I get scars like I got when I was a little kid, I'm going to do it. That's a point of demarcation. A point of demarcation also says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. I believe that. That is a point of demarcation, and I have seen that in you. That's the growth. That's the life. That's the ministry. So Jesus begins this point of demarcation, and he begins his first sermon recorded in Matthew. His first sermon, short but full. It says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This should sound familiar, by the way, because it's 
The same words that John the Baptist said. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, it shows the continuation of God's plan of salvation throughout. Not many plans, but one plan of salvation. And we covered this before. Repent. Repent means to turn. To turn away from that which is evil. Go 180 directions the opposite way and to turn to that which is good. To turn to the Lord. See, Repentance is crucial here because we have a God who forgives. There must be repentance for forgiveness, though. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness of sin. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, Surely no rebel can expect the king to pardon his treason while he remains in open revolt. A lot of people say, well, Jesus would never do that, would he? He would never say, repent? I mean, that sounds harsh. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness of sin. And if you reject that Jesus would say, repent, you reject his forgiveness. You reject the good news that he proclaimed. And the good news is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, the kingdom of heaven is central to Jesus' preaching and teaching. It's central. Most people don't think about it, but it is. If you look through Matthew, or if you look through any of the other Gospels, you see the kingdom of heaven, or, by the way, the kingdom of God. Now, in Matthew, he uses mostly the kingdom of heaven because he's trying to reach the Israelites, the Jews, And to say God's name would have been offensive to their ears, so he says the kingdom of heaven. The other gospels use mostly the kingdom of God, one and the same thing, the kingdom of God. And this is central to Jesus and his teaching. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. That couldn't be much more clear in our minds. I was sent to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Okay, so, but what does that mean, right? We're using this phrase, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? In very simple terms, it means this, the sovereign rule of God. It just means the sovereign rule of God. He is Lord, King over everything. You know, last week I talked about how we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Well, what else do we have in the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. This speaks to the sovereign rule of God, of who God is. Psalm 103 says this, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Right? Over everything. Now, here's the problem. The Israelites were expecting God's kingdom to be a political kingdom. That 
they would be able to take over all the politics in the land and to be able to rule the people that way. But did that happen? No, actually, they fell. And once they were taken captive by the Babylonians, and then even after they came back, there was still the Roman rule, that idea of the kingdom of heaven seemed like a very unrealistic dream, maybe. Maybe God got it wrong somehow. And so they were, they were depressed, downhearted, so to speak. But now you, you had this fellow, John the Baptist, who is out there with all the people saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they were like, whoa, is that true? Is it there? And it started to maybe light the fire a little bit under them. And now Jesus comes along and he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, was he talking about political rule? Wasn't, was he? He was talking about something much larger, much greater than just political rule. As a matter of fact, if you go to Luke chapter 17, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. You see, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is not some political, not some physical rule, although God is sovereign over all. Rather, what is the essence of the kingdom of heaven? The essence of the kingdom of heaven is spiritual in nature. It is knowing Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. And how do you enter into that kingdom? You must be born again. Remember with Nicodemus, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, which is amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the situation is this. You can have somebody who's a non-believer, rejects Jesus, rejects God completely, says, you know what? Here I am. I don't care what you think. This person is not of the kingdom of God. This person is the kingdom of darkness. He is being ruled by the prince of the power of the earth. Now you can have another one, someone who says, I'm a sinner. I repent of all that I've done. I put my faith, my trust. I've received Jesus as Lord and Savior. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, this person is born again. And they see a whole different world outside. Two different people standing side by side. One sees one world, one kingdom. One sees another. And when you understand Jesus and the glory of God, you've been born again. You start to take a look at this world in a different way. See, to know the good news of the kingdom of heaven is to know Jesus, that through him we are saved. By grace we are saved through what? Faith. 
through faith. In him we are forgiven. And when you know Jesus, you enter into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and you become a citizen of that kingdom. Listen, you know what? I was doing all this and I was like, oh man, this is hard. Anybody have that? This is hard to understand. And it is hard to understand this this kingdom of heaven. This is why Jesus used so many different parables, so many different stories. Just, if you want, read Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew chapter 13, you're going to find the kingdom of heaven is compared to a man who sowed good seed, a grain of mustard, leaven that rises the bread, a hidden treasure in the field, a fine pearl, a net that was thrown into the sea, and more. I mean, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And how can you get your mind around that? It's hard. It's hard. But Jesus says through the good news that he preaches, through faith in him, by his grace, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to put in here that some people want to expand the kingdom of heaven in the wrong way. There are people, religious groups specifically, that want to expand the kingdom of heaven by taking over the politics, taking over government, taking over education, taking over the arts, and all of these other things. Will that actually expand the kingdom of heaven? It will not. Now, by the way, going into that, being a Christian and being involved in that, if that's what you're called to do, go for it. But the way to expand the kingdom of heaven is to be able to share the good news with someone else. That's the light that has come into the darkness. That's the only way the kingdom of heaven truly expands, one by one. We bring the light, the life of Christ, into darkness. See, and then at that time, there's going to become a fullness because the kingdom of heaven is now and not yet. There's a future aspect of this kingdom of heaven. And thus, our our reading from Revelation, then the seventh angel blew the trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has come, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen, right? Amen. There's a lot to this, this kingdom of heaven, following Jesus. I'd like you to consider two things. What has been a demarcation point in your faith, in your ministry? What has that been? And if you haven't had one, Maybe it's time to start thinking about one. And then finally, I'd like you to consider, when you're doing ministry for the glory of God, you are a worker in the kingdom of heaven. You are the hands and feet of Jesus, one who has the good news of the kingdom of heaven. And all the people said, amen, amen. 